All right, we have so many. I just want to reinforce a couple things that Kyle said. One, we have so many folks who have been blessed with incredible homes, and I know that you are so thankful for them. And I, I talk to you, and you say, we, just, we can't believe we never thought that we would have this. And uh, this is a tremendous opportunity to be able to open your home up, uh, bring some young adults in, provide a space uh, that they can gather in. And we're kind of really getting ready to kind of move on that in the fall. So I really encourage you to do that. And 150 folks, you heard him say, 150 folks that we need to uh, work in kids' ministry. It's really interesting that as people have come back, I've been talking to folks about this, as people have come back to worship that uh, student ministry has come back kind of in the largest percentage numbers. Adult ministry has been the next. Kids ministry has been the next. But the one that has come back kind of the slowest has been folks that have been involved in leading. And you know everything that we do around here is focused on the next generation. And so uh, if you've never been involved in children's ministry, this is like your chance. So next Sunday, I hope that you'll check that out. Stay, stick around for an open house and, uh, and be a part of that. Um, the other thing I want to say, Kayla was talking about this week, and um, I've talked to a number of you this week in terms of just what's going on in Afghanistan and uh, what's going on in Haiti with the earthquake uh, that hit in a different location than the one that hit a number of years ago. Uh, Lebanon, um, uh, there was a new explosion that took place in the northern part of Lebanon that's near Tripoli, and our Heart for Lebanon ministry has been impacted by that. And and a number of you have just been saying, how can we respond? And this isn't like all the ways that we can respond. And, but a couple of things that we've done is we set up two uh, just kind of relief funds. One is uh, an Afghan refugee relief fund. And another one is uh, a Haiti earthquake relief fund. And uh, some of you have been asking, like, where's that money going to go? And how are we going to do that with, with uh, Haiti? We have an incredible partner in Haiti, Teach Haiti, and Maquette who we actually got connected to um, through the last earthquake that happened in Haiti. And she's doing some amazing work there. And so all the money is gonna be going through Teach Haiti, tremendous organization, and uh, you can trust that entirely. And then as it relates to Afghan relief, uh, refugee relief, we're actually in the process. We, we know that when these kind of things happen, crisis happen in the world, people wanna respond, people wanna do things. And, and it's hard to know what to do. I mean, people pray, but it's like, I wanna do something tangible. I'm not quite sure what that is. And, um, and people oftentimes want to give, and we wanna give you the opportunity to do that. And so both of those funds are available uh, online. But with the Afghan uh, refugee relief, we are in the process of, of looking at a number of organizations and a number of opportunities to be able to steward that money really well. Sometimes what happens in our culture is that people out of really great intentions, they, they generously give, but then sometimes decisions are made that aren't maybe fully thought through that don't steward the resources well. And you know us, that we want to steward those resources really well. So we're looking at a lot of opportunities. A lot of the Afghan refugees that are coming to the United States are coming to the DC area. And so we're working with some organizations of how we can even be involved in that here. Um, and so those are two ways you can respond. Uh, thank you for your generosity. And just thank you for your generosity as church. You guys have been so faithful uh, throughout this pandemic in giving, and it just continues to blow me away. Uh, and if you wanna give us an act of worship today, if you're watching online, there's a little button there at the top of the screen, you can click that, it says give, and start the process. If you're here in the sanctuary, we don't take an offering, but there are boxes in the back of the sanctuary you can put your tithes and offerings in, or you can give online, or you can text, a number of different ways. 
Um, the other thing I just want to say is that we have a really special uh, guest here uh, today, uh, Gary and Marilyn Skinner. And Gary has, uh, Gary has spoken here before. How many, how many of you here when Gary spoke about, was it maybe two years ago, something like that, Gary, a little over that? Yeah, uh, just an incredible uh, message. I just want to give a little context for those that don't know Gary and Marilyn uh, Skinner. Uh, Gary, Gary and Marilyn uh, are the founding pastors uh, of Watoto Church in Uganda, 38 years, right? 38 years ago that it started. And um, I, I just want to say that Watoto Church is not only uh, you know, the most influential church in Uganda, it really is one of the most influential churches in the world. That there are, there are churches all around the world that are kind of looking at Watoto and how they have, how they have advanced the kingdom through evangelism and the, sh- the uncompromising sharing of the gospel, but have lived that out, lived the gospel out in practical ways that is impacting that whole culture and raising up a whole new generation of Ugandans that, some of which are part of our church. We had, so last, the reason Gary and Marilyn are here is we had the 20 year anniversary of Moses and uh, Mercy Niwi. And so can we give it up for 20 years? They're sitting right down here. By the way, this indicates they're faithful because the party went really late and they're here at church today on the front row, which is great. But, um, but anyway, and we, they had a renewal of vows. It was a fantastic experience. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that further, but uh, it's just so awesome to have you guys with us. And just once again, would you just show your appreciation for Gary and Marilyn Skinner and the work they've done? All right, so we're in week seven of uh, this eight-week series on the book of Revelation. And uh, so I mention every week, and I know it gets redundant, but it's really important, three things as we go through this study of Revelation, and we're like moving through it fast because 22 chapters, and we're doing it in eight weeks, so we're kind of doing it in some big chunks. Three things that you have to know about Revelation. One, you have to realize it's a letter that was written to a particular group of people at a particular time going through a particular set of circumstances. It was a letter that came out of a vision that Jesus gave to the, to the apostle, to the disciple John that he passes on, in this case, to seven churches that are located in what is now modern day Turkey. And the reason that that's so important to understand that it's a letter is it keeps us from interpreting Revelation in a way that makes sense in the 21st century, but would not make sense in the first century. Because God's word is timeless, authoritative truth, it has to make sense and be relevant in every generation. It can't be, it can't be irrelevant for 2,000 years and then all of a sudden become relevant because of something that's happening in the world. And so we have to keep in mind, this is a letter written to a church that was going through unbelievable persecution and struggles and difficulties as they were facing their walking out their faith. The second thing you have to keep in mind is that this is a book that cannot be read in kind of like chronological order. It's not written in chronological order. So if you try to read it as kind of a linear thing, you will get so confused in your reading. It is, it's like a series of windows that are looking at the same reality, but from a different perspective. And every time we open up a section of scripture, we're looking at it from a different perspective. Third thing you have to keep in mind is that it's apocalyptic literature, which means that it's imagery, it's symbolism, it's all of that. And the purpose of apocalyptic literature is not just, to, not just to inform our mind, it is to quicken our spirit. 
It is to not just help us understand something, it is to help us feel something. And when you are going through difficult times that has turned your world upside down, you don't just need to hear that God is in control, you need to feel that God is in control. You don't just need to hear that God is on his throne, you need to feel that God is on his throne. And I think, for me at least, uh, I feel like, like we need to hear that and need to feel that more now than ever before. I, I was telling some of the staff this week that the message of Revelation has gotten real to me at another level over the last week or two. I mean, it's always been real, it's always been God's truth. But over the last week or so, just the things that are going on all around the world and more than even just like make the headlines and all of that, just we just need to be reminded that God is still on his throne. Can I get an amen for that? Like we just need to be reminded and we need to feel that God is on his throne and that the future is his and that the future has already been won. Can I get an amen for that? The future is God's, and the future has already been won, and we need to walk in the confidence of that. All right, so last week, Jess did an amazing job unpacking Revelation 15 and 16 and talking about the meaning of the seven bowls and reminding us that, that God's wrath, which is real, is, is not really directed at us that God's wrath is directed at the things that destroy our lives. That God's wrath is directed at injustice and oppression and abuse and power that takes advantage of the, of the weak and the vulnerable and the powerless for personal gain. That God wants to obliterate that. That God wants to destroy that. And in fact, has destroyed it through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, that God, God's wrath has led to the destruction of all that which destroys life and takes away life. This week, we're looking at chapters 17 through 19, and it's this weird image of a woman who is sitting on a beast. Remember, weird imagery in Revelations. A woman that's sitting on a beast, and this is how chapter 17 starts. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit, into a desert. This is John, his experience as he's seeing this vision. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. So John sees this vision. It's of this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, let, let me just start for a second. This is really isn't the main point of day, but let me just start at first with the beast. Like this is the beast that we saw first in Revelation 13. This is the beast that represented evil, inspired, governmental power that tries to move our affection off of Jesus and move it onto governmental systems and structures. Now, let me just say a word about governmental systems and structures in general, okay? In scripture, no governmental system comes across great. 
Like you read through the Old Testament, no governmental system like is lifted up and comes across really great in terms of earthly governmental systems. Whether you're talking about Egypt or Babylon or Persia or the Medes or Rome, all are painted in a, in a really bad light. Even the governmental system of Israel becomes the focus of Jesus. I'm talking about the governmental system. I'm talking about nationalistic Israel. The governmental system of Israel becomes the focus of Jesus' condemnation. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests at the time of Jesus were not just religious leaders. They were governmental leaders as well. They were leaders of nationalistic Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was occupied by Rome and was under Roman rule, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests, they had nationalistic power. And Jesus goes after them really, really hard. So the overarching message, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that for the people of God, and this is so important, no governmental system can become a substitute for the kingdom of God. That's really the message that goes through the Old Testament, that no government, doesn't matter how good it is, whatever, no governmental system can become a substitute for the kingdom of God. Not even the United States. Like, as a governmental system, there are some really good things in our history, and as a governmental system, there are some really bad things in our history. As a governmental system, there are some good things that are going on now in our governmental system. There are some not-so-good things that are going on now. The point of Revelation, and all of Scripture, is that no matter how good a governmental system is, that when it becomes a substitute for the kingdom of God, it becomes beastly. Like that's the point of revelation. That doesn't mean that you can't be proud of your country. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be proud of your country. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be willing to sacrifice for your country, to lay your life down for your country. It just means that you dare not deify your country or dare not deify the leaders of your country. You dare not make your country the ultimate authority in your life because the degree to which you do that is the degree to which it becomes the beast of Revelation. Okay, now riding in on this beast is a woman that's described in two ways. She's described as a prostitute, but she's also described as Babylon. And I think that's kind of the description that in some respects carries the most weight. And Babylon doesn't just represent like the ancient city of Babylon. There was an ancient city of Babylon. Babylon represents cultural influence that does not reflect God's design. That's what Babylon represents. Cultural influence that does not reflect God's design. Now what's interesting about the imagery of a city, think about this. The imagery of a city, Babylon, being used to represent cultural influence that does not, does not reflect the design of God is that the role that cities have played in the world have always been a role of cultural influence. Like cities have always influenced the rest of culture. Cities like set the trends that the rest of culture follows. You know, like, you know, clothing trends and food trends and, and music trends and all like, I, there's all of these trends, right, that are going on in the world. Let me just, let me just, none of them came from Anderson, Indiana, okay, where I'm from. 
None of them came from Bristol, Oklahoma, where I grew up. None of them came from Princeton, India. I love those places. Those are great little towns. They're fantastic. They have the best pizza in the world, Anderson Pizza King, best pizza in the world. But other than Pizza King, even Pizza King did not become a worldwide trend because, because trends, like, they, they, cities influence all of that. Like, that's just the nature of cities in our world. They set the trends that the rest of the culture follows. Cities embrace value systems that oftentimes the rest of the culture follows. Cities have enormous political power, economic power, creative power, all kinds of power. So it's no surprise that God uses a city, especially a pagan city like Babylon, to represent the cultural influence that does not reflect God's design. In fact, what's interesting about Revelation is that it's basically contrasting two cities. I, you know, like if, when you read the Revelation, because it's filled with so much imagery and you can get so kind of lost sometimes in the weed, sometimes it's good to take a step back and kind of look at the overarching picture and some overarching themes that kind of run through the whole book. And one of the overarching themes that kind of runs through the whole book is that there's these two contrasting cities, is that there's Babylon that represents cultural influence that doesn't reflect God's design, cultural influence that is in opposition to God's design, and there is the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem isn't about a city in the Middle East. The New Jerusalem isn't about a city in Palestine. The New Jerusalem represents God's kingdom. The New Jerusalem represents God's best for your life. The New Jerusalem represents the kind of life that God created you to live and wants you to live and, and wants you to experience. And the ongoing message of Revelation is that you can, be a city of, you can be a citizen of the city of Babylon or you can be a citizen of the New Jerusalem. You can reflect the values of Babylon or you can reflect the values of the New Jerusalem. You can allow Babylon to influence the way that you think about the world, the way that you look at the world, the way that you function, your behaviors, your attitudes. You can have Babylon be the biggest influence in your life or you can allow the New Jerusalem to have the biggest influence in your life. Now, the first thing you notice about the woman, about Babylon, is that it is enticingly, enticingly beautiful. Revelation 17, six says, when I, this is John. John, the revelator, John, the disciple of Jesus, John, the one who's seeing this vision. And John, as he's seeing this vision, says, when I saw her, when I saw Babylon, I was greatly astonished. Like one of the translations there says that when John saw her, he marveled greatly. Think about that, of Babylon, right? Even John is momentarily enticed by the beauty of Babylon. He's enticed for the same reason that everyone is enticed at times because Babylon offers life. Babylon says, this is the way to the life. This is the way to life. This is the way that you'll find freedom. This is where you'll find comfort. This is where you'll find purpose. This is where you'll find meaning in life. This is where you'll find wealth. This is where you'll find things that will satisfy you and feel you like this is where you will find all of that. Babylon represents the lure to find pleasure and fulfillment and meaning and purpose and life in things other than God and his kingdom. 
And not only have the power structures of the world always found that attractive. I mean, you look at the history of the world. The power structures of the world have always found attractive the possibility of meaning and power and wealth and all of that that does not come from God, that comes from something other than God. And everyone at times finds that, at least initially, attractive, including John. And that's why the angel immediately turns to John. When John says, I saw her and I was greatly astonished, the the angel turns to John and says, why are you astonished? Like, why are you marveling at Babylon? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the 10 hordes. In other words, the angel says to John, I'm going to show you what Babylon really is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it out for you. And when you realize what it really is, you won't be nearly as astonished. You won't be nearly as tempted to marvel at its beauty. And then what the angel goes on to do is remind John that Babylon is the master of the great bait and switch. Like that Babylon is the master of that. Babylon promises power and pleasure and comfort and wealth. Babylon promises you the good life, uh, the, the best life. Babylon woos you with the idea that, yeah, life is hard. Life is tough. Uh, and here's what would make it better. A drink would make it better. Uh, sex outside of God's design would make it better. More stuff would make it better. More success would make it better. More accomplishments would make it better. Another relationship would make it better. Like all of that, like this is what will make it. Yeah, life is tough. I know it's a hard time. I know you're going through some really do it. Here's what would make it better. Like that is the bait and switch of Babylon. And all you have to do, Babylon says, speaking for the enemy, is follow me. All you have to do is dwell within my walls and I'll keep you safe. I'll make you happy. I'll take away your pain. And it does for a, for a while. But the joys of Babylon never last. Like they're always short-lived. They always end up with more destruction, more unhappiness, more pain. Of course, that's never the part of the messaging strategy of Babylon. The messaging strategy of the enemy. Like we've been talking as a church about like our messaging strategy and how do we do our like the messaging strategy of the enemy, the messaging strategy of Babylon is different. Babylon never takes the direct approach. Like Babylon never says, here's what I want to do. I want to absolutely obliterate your marriage. I want to absolutely destroy your marriage. Babylon never says, I want to get you addicted to something that will have kind of control over your life. Babylon never says, I want you to spend the rest of your life feeling like you'll never have enough money, that you'll never have enough. I want you to experience this insatiable desire for more and more and more and more and never be satisfied. I I want you to feel like you've never achieved enough or accomplished enough or good enough or have never been enough. Like, that's what I want you to experience because nobody's gonna go for that. No one's gonna buy into that. No one's gonna say, that's really good. Sign me up. I've never heard anyone who said, you know, you know what I wanna do with the rest of my life? I wanna make some decisions that absolutely not only destroy 
my marriage and my life, but that destroy the generations that follow. That's what I want to do. That's my mission in life. That's my goal. You know what my goal in life is? My goal in life is to get addicted to something that will have like power and control over it. Like no one would ever like buy into that or sign on for that. That's why with Babylon, it's always a bait and switch. Babylon promises one thing, delivers something else. And the promise is, like, the promise is you'll finally have enough money to feel safe. Like, you're, you're gonna finally have enough money to feel safe. Like, you'll never worry about money again. That's the promise. And, you know, and we all kind of, at times, we buy into that, right? Like, there's been all kinds of studies done of, like, people being asked, like, what would it take for you to feel safe? What would it feel financial? What would it feel to be stable? And it doesn't really matter what level of income people are at. It's always about 20% more. And some of you right now are going, yeah, we just did a financial evaluation, and that's what we figured out. If we can get 20% more, like, everything will be awesome. Like, that's like, the promise is you'll finally have enough to feel safe. You'll never worry about money again. But the reality is that no matter how much you have, you're still not sure that it's enough. And the worry never completely goes away. I know a lot of folks that have a ton of resources and worry as much about money now as they did when they didn't have. In fact, sometimes they worry more about money now than they did when they had less resources. The promise is sex is the path to ultimate happiness. Like if you want to experience happiness, if you want to kind of figure out what's wrong in your life, like sex is the path to ultimate happiness. So find it, just find it. Find it wherever you can find it. It'll fix what's broken in your life. Like if there's something broken in your life, it'll, it, sex will fix what's broken in your life, but it never does. And it often leaves us even more broken. George Eldon Ladd sums this section up of the vision this way. He says, the main thought is that the promise of wealth and luxury, that with the promise of wealth and luxury, Babylon entices humanity away from the worship of God. And that's how Revelation started, remember? The first vision is the throne room, and all of the universe has turned its attention to the one who is sitting on the throne and is giving their worship to the one, and it's saying like, this is what the world was meant to be. Like, this is what, this is what this is all about, is all of creation turning their attention to the one who is sitting on the throne. And what the, what the work of the enemy is, and the work of Babylon is, is to divert our attention from the throne, is to divert our attention from the one who is sitting on the throne. Anything, anything, anything. Even things that are good, even things that maybe seem innocuous when we think about it, even if they divert our attention from the throne, we end up kind of living in Babylon, and it leaves us more and more broken. Then in chapter 18, the vision shifts, and we see the fall of Babylon, the demise of Babylon. Verse 1, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. 
Like Babylon starts out looking great. It starts out looking awesome. It starts out looking beautiful. It starts out looking like the best thing in the world, but that only lasts for a while. Eventually, Babylon falls. Eventually, you see the ugliness of Babylon. Eventually, you realize that Babylon cannot deliver on the things that it has promised. Eventually, you realize that Babylon has offered false hope. And what's interesting is the response of all of those who bought into the false hope, right? So there's all of these folks, all these, the power structures, obviously, of the world, but all of us are tempted at times to buy into the false hope. And this is the response to Babylon falling for those who had bought in to the false hope. It says, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. They'll throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, whoa, whoa, a great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth and she has fallen. And when Babylon falls, like everyone who took the bait, Everyone who bought into the lies, the kings, the merchants, the sea captains, the sailors, everyone, everyone mourns. But they're not mourning Babylon's demise. They couldn't care less about Babylon. Like Babylon is a utilitarian relationship. Babylon is like, what can you do for me, Babylon is the end justifies the means. Like Babylon is just like, this is what I want to get like in my life. This is what I want to have in my life. So they're not mourning the demise of Babylon. They couldn't care less about that. They're mourning the fact that the good life that Babylon offered didn't last. They're mourning the fact that what they thought would make them happy what they thought would fulfill them, what they thought would give their life meaning, what they thought would give their life purpose, what they thought would give their life happiness, what they thought would ease the pain and make things so much better in their life didn't, that it was temporary, that it didn't last. And it's what happens. I mean, it's what happens when we put our ultimate hope in anything other than God. In the short term, it satisfies that's why it works. That's why the bait and switch works. It satisfies. In the short term, it feels like the answer to all of our problems. In the short term, it, it makes everything better for a while, but it never lasts. It always disappoints. In the end, it always lets us down. And that's why John hears this next appeal in the vision. Verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her talking about Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Now keep in mind, the vision is to the seven churches. The vision is to the people of God. The vision is to the church. This is a call 
to the church. This is a call to countercultural kingdom living. This is a call to change your citizenship. This is a call to live as a citizen of the new Jerusalem rather than to live as a citizen of Babylon. Now, what does that mean? Like on a practical basis, right? Like what does a countercultural kingdom focused look, life look like on a practical basis? Well, it means rejecting the violence of Babylon by not giving in to the anger of our day. You know, I, I talked a few weeks ago, we just live in an angry culture. We just live in an angry world. And sometimes our response to the anger is just more anger. We just, we just give in to the anger of the world or we give in to the anger of our spouse or we give in to the anger of or whatever it is, like we give in to the anger and living this countercultural kingdom life is this not giving in to the anger. It means walking in the peace of knowing that the one we serve is sovereign, is in control, the future belongs to him. And when you walk in the realization that God is sovereign and in control and the future belongs to him, it begins to kind of take away some of that anger that we don't like buy into the anger of the world. It means rejecting the consumption of Babylon by living these big, bold, radically generous lives. Babylon creates this insatiable desire, right, for, for more. I need more money. I need a bigger house. I need a nicer car. And the list just goes on and on and on. And when you're living in Babylon, you never get to the point. Like, when you're living in Babylon, you never get to the point of saying, wow, I am so unbelievably blessed. I cannot believe how blessed that we are in every way. Like, I have so so much, and, and how can I use this unbelievable amount of blessing that I've received from the Lord? How, like, how can I use that to bless others? Like, how can I use this to advance the kingdom? I, I was talking about the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, renewal of vows that we went to, the celebration, 20-year anniversary celebration of Mercy of Moses, which was awesome at so many levels. And uh, we had lots of uh, folks that talked and talked about the influence they'd had on their life, and it just just so great to kind of hear all that. But one of the things that was interesting was one lady came up, and she was talking about their their mission statement that they have a mission statement as a family. And and first of all, how many of you have a mission statement? No, you don't need to raise your hands because most of us probably don't have a mission statement as a family. But they have a mission statement as a family, and that their mission statement as a family is to be, this is their mission. Like they talk about this with their kids. Think about this. Think about the impact that you have with your kids when you say, okay, kids, like this is what we're all about. Like this is our mission in life. Our mission is to be the world's biggest blessing. Like that's our mission. Like our mission, our mission as a family is to take all the things that God has entrusted to our care, our house, our resources, our time, our gifts, and we wanna figure out how can we use all of these things which are part of God's blessing in our life, how can we use all of these things to bless others in the maximum impact way? Like that's rejecting the consumption of Babylon, folks. That is living these bold, radically generous lives. Like that's what it 
means to live this countercultural kingdom life. The countercultural kingdom life is rejecting the sexual ethic of Babylon. The sexual ethic of a culture that does not reflect God's best. The sexual ethic of a culture that does not reflect God's design for sexual intimacy and embracing, it's embracing God's design. Countercultural kingdom living is rejecting the hate of Babylon by practicing radical hospitality. It's setting a table for your enemies. That's what it is. It's setting a table for your, it's inviting people you have differences with into your life and into your home. Uh, not so you can talk about your differences. That almost never ends very well. But so that you can affirm the humanity and the create, being created in the image of God that this other person who has differences with you has by breaking bread at the table. There is this sacred possibility that happens every time we sit at the table. There's something about table fellowship. It's biblical. There is something about table fellowship that breaks down barriers. Let me just say, I know, I know sometimes I harp on this, but you know we live in a culture of echo chambers, and social media has given us the opportunity and, and news broadcasts and all that, like it's given us the opportunity to create an echo chamber that we never leave. And all we surround ourselves with and all we hear are people that think exactly like we think. And so we say something, we post something, we whatever, and all we hear are people going, yeah, that's right, that's so true. I can't believe no one else is saying that. Like we just surround ourselves with people who think the way we think, believe what we believe, have the same values that we have, and what it means to live these countercultural, kingdom-oriented lives is to say, I'm going to break out of my echo chamber. I'm gonna get out of my echo chamber, and I'm going to create opportunities to spend time with people who I know I have differences with. Not for the purpose of arguing about the differences. Not for the purpose of harping on the differences. But for the purpose of being the presence of Christ in the lives of people who are created in the image of God and recognizing the sacred potential of that encounter. That's what it means to live these countercultural kingdom life. Now look at how this ends. I'll wrap this up, okay? I know I'm going long. This is how it ends. After this, this is verse nine, uh, chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us 
rejoice. Let us be glad. Let us give him glory. Let us actually sing when we're in church worshiping. Let us maybe be so bold as to raise our hands and maybe jump up and down. Like that's not in the text, but it's there, okay? For the wedding of the lamb has come. The wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, that's us. His bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. You know what that means? You know what that's saying? It's saying that the kingdom of God is a party and you are invited. The kingdom of God is a party and you are invited to the party. And the party isn't in Babylon. That's where culture thinks the party is. They think that Babylon is the place to be, right? They think that Babylon has the best parties, but the parties in Babylon are loser parties. Like the parties in Babylon, they're the parties that start at 6 p.m. and end at 7 p.m. They're the parties that don't last. They're the parties that maybe start strong for the first 15 minutes, but then there's no sustainability to it. Like they just fizzle out. Like those are the parties of Babylon. The party of the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us to is the party that goes on forever. It's the party that never ends. It's, it's the party like Moses and Merce's party last night. Like this was not a six o'clock to seven o'clock party. This was a six o'clock to seven o'clock to eight o'clock to nine o'clock to 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And I left and then it went on after that like this is the party of the kingdom. That's the party of the New Jerusalem folks. That's the party you are invited to. Not this little short party that starts big and then ends, like that is the party that never ends. Okay, let me wrap this up by asking you a question. And you can be honest because you don't have to raise your hand and you don't have to say anything and God knows and he already knows your answer and he already knows what the reality is so you might as well be honest. So let me just ask you, like what city are you living in right now? Just be honest, what city are you living in right now? And maybe you're a citizen of the new Jerusalem, right? You've put your faith in Jesus, you put your faith in Christ, you've settled that issue, you're a citizen of the, of the kingdom, you're a citizen of the king, um, you're a citizen of new Jerusalem. But if you were to be really honest, You've been hanging out in Babylon. Maybe for the last month, maybe for the last year, maybe for some period of time, it's like you've been hanging out in Babylon. You've gotten swept up in the culture of Babylon. You're not living this countercultural kingdom life that God has created you to live and called you to live. And here's the message of Jesus to you. Jesus says, come out. Come out of Babylon. Like, come out of Babylon and come back to the party. Jesus says, I've missed you at the party. Like, I know that you've prayed the prayer. I know you've made a decision. I know that you're a citizen of New Jerusalem. But why, like, why are you spending all of that time in Babylon? Like, come out of Babylon and come back to the party. I've missed you. I've missed 
fellowship with you and hanging out with you and laughing with you and crying with you and spending time with you. I've missed you. Come back. Come back to the party. Or maybe you've really never put your faith in Christ. And you've been living in Babylon like your whole life. Like you never would have put it that way. That's not the terminology you would use. But given the context is like that's what's happening. Like you've been living in Babylon your whole life. And you thought Babylon was like as good as it gets. You thought this is as good as life could possibly be. And Jesus says, you don't have to live there anymore. Like, you don't have to live in Babylon anymore. Jesus says, I died on the cross to set you free from the hollow promises of Babylon. Like, that's why I gave my life, so that you did did not have to dwell in Babylon. And Jesus' message to you is the same. He says, I died for you so that you you can leave the empty promises, the hollow promises of Babylon You can come out of Babylon. So Jesus says, come out. Come out. I know you thought maybe this was it. This was life. This was all there was to life. No, no, no. No, come out of Babylon and come to a party that is beyond your wildest imagination. Like you thought the best path to joy and life and happiness and fulfillment and all of that was you were one relationship away, one raise away, one accomplishment away, one whatever it is away. Like you kept thinking, that's it. This is the best. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I come out of that because there's a party going on that is beyond your wildest imagination. And I want you here. I died so that you could be here, so come out of Babylon and come to the party. Jesus, we are so thankful for your incredible love for us. And we're thankful even with all of the imagery and symbolism that sometimes confuses us, Lord, we are so thankful for the message of revelation. This message of invitation that you give to us to to come to the party, to experience your forgiveness and your grace and your wholeness and to experience life the way you created it to be experienced, to have a hope that we can never find in anything else, to have fulfillment and purpose that doesn't just go away, that's not fleeting, that can't be taken away by whatever it is going on in this world. And so, Lord, we repent. We repent of our sins. We repent of substituting things for you. We repent of thinking somehow that we could find life in something other than you. We confess that. We repent of that. We want, we want to live our life at the party. And we know that that's possible because of what you've done for us on the cross, the finished work of the cross. And we give you thanks. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.